everybody, I am John Miller, and this is Everybody Trades. So how you doing on this very, very special day before Good Friday? Oh wait, no wait, it's not the day before Good Friday, I'm sorry. No, this is Mueller Thursday. Yes, that's right. Robert Mueller, our Lord and Savior, is finally here to save us from the dastardly Donald Trump. Well, at least that's what CNN would have had you believed for some time. Until, wait, once I thought this report was already released. Well, it was in some summary redacted form. And as soon as that happened and the information wasn't what the CNNs of the world and the anti-Trump people wanted, it sure seemed like Robert Mueller went from having the most integrity in all of Washington to just another Trump puppet as soon as the information wasn't what these people desired. Well, and now we've got, now Barr, the Attorney General, well, he was then the guy. He was the guy we were supposed to trust. And once we get the info from him, then everything will be grand. Well, now it seems like now the goalposts have been moved once again, and Attorney General Barr is now a Trump puppet as well. Well, I only have one small piece of advice. After the last two to three years of all this stuff, of all the leaks, of all the supposed incoming bombshells, I think it's perhaps time to ignore all of this, don't you? I just would say, if you're gonna, if you're planning on spending your Good Friday, your Easter weekend, reading 440 some odd pages of the slightly redacted Mueller report, please don't. Please, please think of a more productive way to spend your time, like perhaps I don't know, putting the business end of a pogo stick on your nutsack and jumping on it repeatedly. I think that would actually be a much better use of your time than reading the utterly boring and totally inconsequential, at least that's my prediction, on the Mueller report. Hey, I'm not going to actually read the thing. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I have an actual life. I have people who love me. I have friends. I'm not going to sit inside of a cold, darkened room and read something that I know is going to teach me absolutely nothing. Now, don't get me wrong, your CNNs, they're going to comb through it. They're going to find their little bits and pieces in order to keep this thing going. But to be honest, I get, I, I'm just sick of this whole thing because it sucks up so much oxygen in the room that to me the biggest news of the week was Donald Trump vetoing the resolution to stop helping the Saudis, the Saudi Arabians with their the Saudi government helping with their conflict in Yemen, their their war essentially in Yemen. See, to me that was the big news of the week, but that took up basically no airtime on your mainstream outlets whatsoever. You know, AP would tweet it out and that's about all it got. You see, because apparently people in Washington are much more interested in their own power and their own their own establishment. Everything that's going on in Washington, the power thereof. See, that's much more important than actual living, breathing human beings that are being killed and maimed in part by the Saudi government and the, and the people that they support in Yemen. To me, that's totally disgusting. And the idea that the Saudis are somehow, oh, because they have, oh, they have WWE now, guys. They're getting really Western, right? Yeah, old uh, Prince Mohammed bin Salman, he's such a cool, young, hip cat now. Yeah, we're really, he's into Western music and pro wrestling, so we should trust him, right? So the idea that the Saudi family 
has any interest in spreading democracy or freedom to Yemen is so stupid and is just so insanely insulting to my and your intelligence that nobody should believe that nonsense for one second. So if somebody can tell me why the country of Yemen holds any threat to the United States of America whatsoever, I'd like to hear it. And it's really difficult to make any 9-11 connection there when most of the perpetrators who were in those planes, who perpetrated that horrifying crime on humanity, those people were from Saudi Arabia. They were Saudi Arabian nationals. But again, they're the United States' big ally, so we just do what they want, apparently. Well, of course, that all comes back to oil, that old relationship, right? Now, at the risk of you people screaming, oh, you lefty, you're just doing the blood for oil thing. Yeah, don't ever call me a lefty again, number one. Number two, let's take your logic. Do we need their oil anymore? Of course not. Not in a situation where America has figured out fracking and all the different places in North America where we haven't even begun to explore where all the oil is. See, North America... And I say North America because guess what? Canada's a really good trading partner. They'll trade our, they'll trade oil with us. They're discovering it all over the place. Not only do we not actually need the Saudis and their oil, it's my contention that the Saudis are lying about how much oil they have. Now, do I have any evidence for this? No, no actual evidence, just simple logic. See, I think people are motivated. I'm always into motivation. And... If you think about the Saudis, they, they claim to have however many millions or trillions or whatever the number is, billions of barrels of oil that they produce. My point is, how do we know that? We essentially just take their word for it. There's no task force that we send in to check their numbers or anything. Basically, the Saudis give us those numbers. They tell us how much oil they're producing. Well, given how much power that gives them, in the international scene in terms of foreign policy and the power with D.C. particularly, why wouldn't they lie about it? They have every incentive in the world to lie about how much oil they're producing. I'm guessing they're lying by quite a bit. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying they don't have any oil, but my contention is, and I think it's quite obvious, that they have every incentive in the world to lie to the world about how much oil they're producing, and I almost guarantee it. See, the sad thing is, and to be honest, one of my goals in this show or one of my overall thoughts is that I want to be different. I don't want to just be saying the same thing that you're hearing everywhere else in the media, obviously. So one of the things I have been trying to avoid, really two of the biggest words slash names I've been trying to avoid have been Trump and Obama. Because guess what? Those are two big flashpoints, obviously, for emotion, for intellectual disagreement, for all types of things. So because, again, the the mainstream outlets spend so much time focusing on the presidency, I've tended to focus a little bit less on it than you might expect. But for this episode, we are going to focus on the presidency because, again, for Yemen, this particular topic, this is something that's outside the mainstream. Now, here's the deal. Donald Trump, candidate Trump, candidate Trump, before he was elected, 
again, was all about, in terms of we're focusing on foreign policy here, was all about America first. And he was questioning, why do we need troops all over the place? Why are we essentially fighting other countries' battles for them? And why don't we bring a lot of these troops home and not be and not be in these wars that have literally taken over a decade at this point in some cases? Well, now as you can see, we've entered a new front. We've helped. We, well, we've, we've gone along with the Yemen thing. We've, we've not pulled out really of anywhere other than there was talk of pulling out. Trump was talking of pulling troops out of Syria, and we saw how quickly he kind of backpedaled on that. My point is, is once Donald Trump got in office, suddenly, suddenly the words and the actions of President Trump didn't quite jibe with what candidate Trump said. Now, you might think, well, that's just Trump. He's a liar and an asshole. Well, maybe he is. But we can't let Barack Obama off the hook for Yemen either, nor any of this war stuff. And again, let's contrast what candidate Obama said versus what President Obama actually did. You see, candidate Obama, most people remember, yeah, he's the first really truly viable black candidate who ever ran for president in any major party. Other than I, you can maybe argue Jesse Jackson, but let's just stick with Barack for the purposes of this discussion. But really, people tend to forget now, and, and maybe if you weren't old enough to remember, one of the things that really distinguished candidate Obama at the time was his vote as a member of the House of Representatives against authorizing the war in Iraq. You see, Hillary Clinton voted for it, and many, many other mainstream Democrats voted to authorize war in Iraq. But candidate Obama did not. Representative Obama voted against it, and that allowed him to draw a distinction between himself, Hillary Clinton, and, of course, his Republican opponent, John McCain. And by the time Americans voted Barack Obama into office in November of 2008, the war in Iraq had been going for about five years at that point. And again, just for perspective, all of World War II, if you take it from the Pearl Harbor attacks to the Japanese surrendering in, 19, in the summer of 1945, that was less than four years. So if you compare it to Iraq, which had been going on for five years, again, when Obama was elected president, it's easy to see that with Again, no end in sight with that particular war. The war in Iraq had no end in sight whatsoever when Obama was elected. It's understandable that that would strike a chord with Americans. That Americans would say, yeah, what are we doing in Iraq? Or really just the Middle East in general. You could extrapolate from Obama's vote against the war in Iraq and all of his rhetoric about foreign policy and about just basically being anti-war was essentially what he was trying to get people to think about there. Basically, what I'm trying to say is his anti-war, anti-Iraq stance was in no small part why he was elected president. And in fact, I'd argue is a huge part why Barack Obama was elected president. No matter what you think about the war in Iraq, I think that's tough to argue. Again, with just the timelines I've, I've shown you here. Americans aren't really into endless wars, especially when they haven't been directly attacked by the, the nation of Iraq, the government of Iraq. See, there was no Pearl Harbor moment 
from Iraq. See, in Pearl Harbor, it was easy for Americans who, by the way, before the, the Pearl Harbor attack, vast, vast, vast majority of Americans were not interested whatsoever in getting in the conflict in Europe is what it was called at the time. Before it was called World War II, before America got into it, it's basically just just another war in Europe and just another war in Asia. Just another thing, another in the hundreds and thousands of wars that have happened before them in that area. So long story short, despite their seemingly large differences in policy, it turns out that candidate Obama and candidate Trump had a lot more in common with themselves than they did with their presidential counterparts. So what I'm saying is, is candidate Obama had more in common with his foreign policy takes with candidate Trump than he did he did with himself as President Obama. Because again, as we know, as much as I've complained about what Trump did using his second veto being one of the least vetoing presidents of all time. He uses it on this Yemen thing. Well, again, I can't let tr- I can't let Obama off the hook because that whole thing, the Yemen aid to to the Saudis began in 2015 under his watch. So, obviously he's not off the hook. And certainly he and Hillary Clinton are not off the hook for starting another war and another front in Libya. And again, say what you will about Muammar Gaddafi, he was a horrible man, but he denuclearized. He got rid of his nuclear weapons. And for Barack Obama, for the Obama administration, along with Hillary Clinton, who was his Secretary of State, for them to decide to take out Muammar Gaddafi after he denuclearized, after he got rid of his nuclear weapons, what message does that send to the rest of the world. Do you think Kim Jong-un might have noticed that? Do you think he noticed that when Muammar Gaddafi gave up his nuclear weapons, that he didn't get anything out of it? You see, none of these dictators are going to give up nuclear weapons out of the goodness of their heart. They might do it if they think they get something out of it. But that's all gone now. I don't know how anybody could trust the United States government after that. Any of these leaders of nations could trust them. Why would you ever denuclearize after that? Really, ultimately, the point I'm getting to is, this is something I've focused on a lot. And that's something I talked about in the previous episode, and that's political power. You see, when you have political power, specifically if you're the United States president, you have the ultimate political power. You have the ability to not only legally harm people who have done nothing to anybody else, but you have the most massive and powerful military that has ever been assembled. And imagine if you had that power at your fingertips, what that might do to your psyche, to your actions. See, again, like Richard Mayberry says, political power corrupts the morals and the judgment. And other than perhaps... Eisenhower and George Washington, I can think of really no exceptions to that, and even those two might be a stretch. I'm sure you could make arguments that they were corrupted by power as well. But my point is, those are two of the only people I can ever think of who, having had that ultimate position of power, later spoke out against it. See, usually these people, your George Bushes of the world, take George W. Bush. 
See, he's not a, he doesn't speak out against political power per se. He'll speak out against Donald Trump because he doesn't think Trump should have that power. See, the power itself is not the problem if you're in the establishment. The problem is, is the wrong people having that power. Well, it's my contention that the power itself is the problem. Because there is no one person who is above all of the rest of us, who is so much better morally than all of the rest of us. And frankly, even if they were better, even if they were the perfect person, even a reincarnated version of Jesus Christ himself would not have the knowledge. You would need God in order to have the knowledge to do everything that the United States government tries to do. So anyway, let's be present with our loved ones and be absent from the Mueller report. Because my God, what an utter waste of time that will only lead to frustration. So hey, thanks for listening once again. I'm John Miller. See you guys next week.